Well, good morning. Good morning. When David was uh, speaking earlier, I just began thinking, like, wow, wouldn't it be great to continue in uh, Exodus chapter 5? Because you start looking at Pharaoh and uh, the whole matter of belief and, and actually the matter of disbelief and the cost of disbelief. Great message. And an important one for our lives as well. I've been preaching for a lot of years now. I think I started when I was about 20. And I'm not sure that ever on any Sunday morning I've ever felt like this is going to be a piece of cake. You know, never. And I think because when you stand behind a pulpit, you're aware of the fact, you're aware of two things. One, the people in front of you are God's people. And God holds you responsible for them. And the second thing is, you're handling the Word of God, and you want to do that right. And um, that's not always the easiest thing in the world to do. So this morning, I'm just wondering if we could take a moment to pray. Uh, we're going to get into some very difficult issues this morning, and uh, hopefully we'll come out the other end and say, wasn't it great to have gone through that and to see some of God's truth, and hopefully it really will apply to our lives and be... Uh, instrumental in us uh, growing in Christ, but it'll be a, a little bit of work to do that. Let's pray together. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are an incredible, loving, faithful God. When it is our natural inclination to run away from you, you pursue us. And in, you, in your grace and in your mercy, you offer us restoration. We pray today, Father, as we meet in this place, that you would be honored with what is said and that your Holy Spirit would use the words to bring about changes in our lives. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began a series in the Apostles' Creed, and as we began this series in the Apostles' Creed, I, I want to make it clear, we're not studying the Creed, okay? We're taking the Creed and we're using it as, as a template, we're using it as a guide to make sure that we work our way through Christian doctrine so that we see what believers really believe. I mentioned a few things last week. I mentioned, first of all, that there are many believers who don't even know what they believe. A lot of Christians don't know what they believe, can't articulate what they believe, can't defend what they believe, and because of that weakness, believe things that actually they shouldn't believe. And so we remind ourselves of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 that we're to be able to give a reasonable defense for the hope that is within us. That's what we're really trying to do. This past week, I came across a little bit of an article which said that, that churches in Canada, which have moved away from creedal statement, that have moved away from doctrinal truth, are also churches that are dying. Lots of churches are dying in Canada. On the other hand, there is a segment of growing churches. And those churches that are growing in Canada are churches that are Bible-based churches. I like our name, don't you? Our middle name is Bible. Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. 
And so we want to stay focused on the Word, and we want to enjoy some of that growth that's happening. Last week we began with a little phrase, I believe. And and as we spoke about believing, somehow I was aware of the fact that, that the word belief today in our society is somewhat anemic, right? It's kind of been disembodied. It's kind of been, uh, what should we say, just lessened in value. You get into an argument with somebody, you say, I believe, and they say, well, we know. And I wanted to make sure that you understood that while people make it sound like knowledge is primary, and point of fact, belief is primary. Belief actually precedes knowledge. Or to put it a different way, you believe something before you know anything. For example, you believe you can know, right? You believe that there is something to know. Even the most crazy skeptic believes something. There's an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Gorgias. Gorgias had three little principles. The first one was, nothing is. The second one is, if anything is, it can't be known. And the third principle was, if anything is and can be known, it can't be communicated. You feel like saying, at some point, Gorgias, how did you know any of that? You know, I mean, but we don't want to play philosophical games here this morning. We really do want to focus on the truth. And last week, I wanted to just get clear on the fact that as believers, we don't back up because we believe. Everybody believes, okay? I don't care whether you're a materialist, an idealist, a theist, a Christian, whatever. You believe, you believe something. We don't back away from belief. But that, of course, brings us to the place where we talk about what we believe, that, of course, is what the creed is all about. That's why we're going to say something this morning like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in life everlasting. I believe in forgiveness of sin. We believe in many things. And because we believe in forgiveness of sin, we obviously believe in the reality of sin. And we believe in depravity. And we believe a lot of things that affect how we look at the world. As Christians, we see the world through a lens. We call this thing a worldview. Everybody sees the world through some kind of a lens. We see it through a Christian lens. We see it through the beliefs that we have. There's a difference between, however, having a Christian mindset and being a Christian. See, we talk about what we believe. We talk about that we believe. We talk about what we believe. We talk about how we believe. And so last week, I shared with you four little faces, if you will, of belief. It's not my idea. It's Peter Kreft's idea. Peter Good asked that I share book titles better, so I'll try to outline these. And if you have any questions about book titles that I might use today, just email me tomorrow and say, okay, Lou, what were the books? And I'll email you back and say, these are the books I referred to. Okay, deal? Okay, because I don't want to be putting pictures of books up all morning. We could do that. But the book by Peter Kreft is called Handbook of Christian Apologetics. And in there, he talks about these four faces of belief. You remember, we talked about intellectual. There is intellectual faith. I come to the place where I believe that what Christianity affirms about reality, in fact, conforms to the reality in which I live. It's true. 
is another aspect of belief. It's what we call the emotional aspect, which is that not only do intellectually I understand things from a Christian point of view, but emotionally somehow that feels right to me. It, 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 it just has a resonance with who I am, what I am, what I experience. The third level of belief is what we call volitional belief. And that's where you come to the place you say, you know what? It looks like the facts are right. It matches up with how I feel. And now I commit myself to this. I choose to act on the basis of those truths and those experiences which I have as a Christian. And this begins to sound suspiciously like something that Jesus said. Remember? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with your whole being. And that came to the fourth kind of faith that Kreft talks about, which is heart faith. As a man believes in his heart, so he is. We want to be men and women after God's own heart. Some of you will remember that a few years ago when I was in Egypt, I lost everything pretty much that I had with me. In fact, I lost my favorite Bible. I still mourn for that Bible. Every day I look for that Bible on my desk. I don't like change. And some Egyptian has my favorite Bible. I'm hoping God's using it. But the reason I like that Bible so much is at one point in the Ukraine, I had done a series of messages on David, a man after God's own heart. And we had a stamp made up in Ukrainian that we stamped in the Bible over there in 1 Samuel 13. I want to be a man after God's own heart. Sign your name. And 50 of us did that together. And that's the thing I miss most, is that stamp and that place where I took a stand. I want to be a man after God's own heart. Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. I believe. But today we want to talk about I believe in God. We're going to take it up a notch. And I wonder if we could recite the creed together. We'll put it up on the screen now. Oh, can you see that? Can anybody read that? Okay, good. Why don't we stand while we do it? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven, and he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. It was a day in Canada, you know, when reciting the Apostles' Creed would have been just kind of not a problem at all. Most Canadians would have done that. And I'm not talking about what immigration has done to Canada. I'm talking about what's happened to Canadians who have lived in Canada for a long time. Because while at one point in time it was fashionable to say, I believe in God, today it is fashionable to say, I don't 
believe in God. Atheism has come out of the closet, and all of a sudden, it seems like believers are in a fight for their life. It seems like we now have to stand up for our faith, and and the world is looking at us and saying, oh my goodness, what rock did they crawl out from under? That's superstition. I mean, if you can imagine, we live in the world of fact. We live in the world of realism. We live in the world of science. How could you possibly believe anything like that? As if science was the only test of truth anywhere. Oh, by the way, you might want to ask yourself a question. What truth justifies science? It's not as simple an answer as you might think. And so as you start thinking about these things, well, people say, they give three reasons that they don't believe. First of all, there's not enough evidence. God didn't leave enough evidence. If you go to McMaster University, you'll find a section of McMaster University where they have a very, very prized collection. The prized collection is the Bertrand Russell Library. The Bertrand Russell Library certainly contains a little book by Bertrand Russell which says, Why I Am Not a Christian. On one occasion, Russell was asked, What are you going to say if, in fact, you were wrong and you meet God? And he said, I'm going to tell God he didn't give me enough evidence. Wow. So that's one reason. There's a second reason. It's called Occam's Razor if you're interested in philosophy, but you don't have to deal with that. There, there was a time, you know, when we didn't know nearly as much as we know now. And we, and we needed kind of a, uh, a mental construct to explain the gaps in knowledge. And so we kind of came up with a, a God idea. Whenever we couldn't explain anything, we, it was kind of like God. You know, when we didn't know much about space, we said, you know what? The heavens belong to God. The secret things belong to the Lord. There's a God deal, right? But now we know a whole lot more. We don't need God nearly as much in our explanations. We've got theoretical terms. We don't use metaphysical terms anymore. They say we use theoretical terms. That means they're more scientific and they can be more rigidly controlled. We don't need God. Well, you know what? The fact that you don't need something, or the fact that something is not necessary, does not make it non-existent. And you might be wrong about the non-necessary thing, too. But for sure, it doesn't make it non-existent. There's a third reason people look at the world and they say, wow, there's so much chaos. There is so much disorder. It it just doesn't make sense. There's so much evil. If there really is a good God, how on earth could the world be this way? And so as Christians, we need to address these questions. We have to ask ourselves, is it reasonable to believe in God? Is it reasonable to believe in God? And as we answer that question today, we're going to look at some of the arguments for God's existence. If you read Kreft's book, Handbook for Apologetics, he lists 20 of them. I have no idea how many arguments there are for the existence and the reality of God. But it's a lot more than 20. And don't get scared, we're not doing 20 this morning, okay? We don't have time for 20 this morning. 
well, probably five or six will be more than enough. But as we begin thinking about this, one of the things I want you to understand today is that God isn't having an identity crisis this morning. Okay? God isn't jumping up and down and having no, hey, you guys down there, I'm here, I'm here. Okay? That's not happening. And so when, when you look at this question, God doesn't seek to prove his existence. When you go to Exodus chapter 5 or Exodus chapter 3 or wherever you want to go in Exodus, what's God say? Pharaoh, get this one in your mind. I always am. I am that I am. I don't come into being. I don't go out of being. I am being. I am the bottom line. There's a second thing we see about God. God says he's the beginning of stuff. The Genesis uh, chapter 1. In the beginning, God creates that and the earth. Is it reasonable to believe? Well, let's at least say God doesn't go about trying to prove his existence. There's a second thing that you need to understand today, too. It's much more difficult to prove the non-existence of something than it is to prove the existence of something. Marguerite and I love birds. If you've ever been out to our place, we've got bird feeders everywhere. Uh, I just said yesterday, do you realize, Marguerite, it's cost me three bucks a day to watch these birds? And that's probably an underestimate. Okay. There's something about birds I like. I'm looking forward to May already because on May, that's when the hummingbirds come back and the Baltimore Orioles come back. But there's one special bird that shows up at my house three days a year an indigo bunting. I do everything I can to get this indigo bunting to hang around. I mean, he's absolutely beautiful, and hardly anybody else I know has one that visits their house. This one visits mine. I use every best seed I can find to keep him hanging around. He won't stay. He's got other things on his mind besides eating loose bird food. I love that bird. But I want you to think about this. How many sightings does it take to prove the existence of a rare bird. How many times would you have to say, I saw that bird before people would believe the bird existed? Now, reverse the question and say, how long would it take for you to show that the bird didn't really exist? I mean, where would you look at? You don't know, maybe he moved. Right? There's a lot of things that could happen. So, so the amount of evidence needed for disconfirmation is greater than that which is needed for confirmation. That's the second thing that we want to keep in mind. So I now I want you to think about this. I want you to think you're on a ship. Okay? Uh, it, it wasn't one of those lovely cruises. This ship is going to sink. Okay? So we don't, we don't want it to be a cruise ship. Okay? You're on this ship, the ship's saying somehow you find a piece of debris that, that you get caught in some ocean current and you end up on a desert island. Or I shouldn't say desert, deserted. Because I want you to live, you need water and food and stuff like that, right? And on this desert island, you're out walking around. Every day you're out walking around looking for somebody. Anybody here, anybody here? Maybe you're yelling and screaming, whatever. One day you see footprints. 
footprints in the sand. You've never been to this part of each before. So they're not your footprints. And besides, they're a lot bigger than your normal footprints. They're not huge. They're just they're human, but bigger. They're not your footprints. And all of a sudden you begin to realize maybe there is somebody else here. That's what the footprints in the sand are all about. And what I want to suggest today is that while God doesn't seek to prove his existence, he actually leaves evidence of existence. And I want to refer to those as kind of like footprints in the sand. So let's talk about a number of footprints. The first is the creation footprint. Okay, for those of you who are in, you know, theologically, you've been to seminary or whatever. This is called the cosmological argument. You don't need to know that. You just simply need to know something like this: every effect has a cause. The world is an effect, therefore, the world has a cause. Guess who? I mean, that that's at the end of the equation, right? I mean, that there must be a reason for something to be in being. And by the way. This is what Genesis 1 is all about, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I like the way John intensifies that in the gospel. Have you noticed that John intensifies it? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Now listen to this deal. And without him was not anything made that was made. If it came into being, he's responsible. The psalmist, of course, speaks about the same kind of thing, but in a more poetic form. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show forth his handiwork. And basically what it's saying is the existence of stuff. Stuff isn't self-caused. There needs to be a reason for stuff being here. God is the reason for the stuff. That's here. That leads us to a second footprint. This footprint would be a little bit more, what shall we say, controversial. The design footprint. And if you like studying theology and you like big words, this is what's known as the teleological argument for God's existence. Teleos is the word for end in the Greek, so... When you talk about this, you're talking about purpose, okay? You're thinking about there is a purpose, there's an order, there's a structure. And the argument runs something like this. Design implies or presupposes a designer. The world exhibits design, therefore the world, or the cosmos, has a designer. Not about you. I'm impressed Are you not impressed with the design structure of the world? I just checked it out this morning because I I I thought I had noticed something on Google a week or two ago um, about eclipses. There's going to be an eclipse, a solar eclipse, on August 21st. I hope you're going to get ready. Just to see it, if nothing else. But there's a lot of eclipses. And here's the, here's the thing that amazes me about eclipses. I mean, they're, they're really fascinating. But the thing that's most fascinating is that you know exactly when they're going to happen 
years and years and years and years and years in advance. Okay. You don't just know the year. You know the day. You know the time. And you know the exact location where they're going to be visible. A bit of regularity there, wouldn't you say? Okay. And then I think about I'm not going to be the first guy calling up Virgin Airlines and saying, can I fly to the moon or Mars or wherever uh, Branson is planning on going. I'm not going there. I'm quite happy here. Okay. Besides, I'd die before I got wherever I was going, so you know, what's the point? But you have to admit, when you look at the incredible accuracy with which you can take a projectile from Earth and send it to Saturn or Jupiter or Mars or the Moon or wherever, calculate all of the gravitational pulls, the speeds. There's a lot of design out there. And there's not just a lot of design out there. There's a lot of design in here. I, I can tell you how old I am. You, you can say you don't need to, but I'm going to tell you anyhow. But I'm not going to tell you my age. I can remember when I was studying biology in my second year at university that DNA was a new thing. Yeah. It was all before a crime scene investigation made it really popular. And, you know, we didn't have any of that. It was like, wow. RNA, DNA, like we just thought we were so brilliant because we knew it. And it was like, and, you, and now you start talking about it. IBM just put out a thing last week, five things that are going to happen in the future. One of the five things is from the day you're born, they're going to start treating you for all the illnesses you're going to have. How do you like that one? Then you have a chance to get sick before you're getting well. Hey, great. Just think of the endocrine system in the body, all of the hormonal stuff that works. I'm not a doctor. Jim can talk about that next week. I'm just absolutely amazed at the immune system and all. And there's a lot of design out there. And yet as soon as you start using this word design, there's people who start kind of like getting really nervous because you use the word intelligent design and that's sneaking God into the equation. I was asking, what would non-intelligent design look like? It's not such a dumb question, right? How would you know intelligent design from non-intelligent Design and, and to me, it really comes down to saying, you see design and design and design and design. It's kind of like seeing the Mona Lisa and saying, Da Vinci never existed. Or maybe it's like, anybody ever seen Monet's water lilies? I mean, it's absolutely, can you imagine the water lilies of Monet without Monet? I, that's the whole idea. When you see this kind of incredible design, sooner or later, you might come to the idea that there is a designer. 
Well, those two arguments are kind of based on the external. Now we start looking to the inside, and Rene Descartes, actually Anselm, formed the argument first, but we're not going to go back there. Something called the ontological arguments about God's being. I have an idea of God. See, the God consciousness deal. I mean, people tend to have an idea of God. It may not be very clear on what he is or whatever. Even in atheistic countries, like when Marguerite and I lived in Russia, it was amazing how many people had survived atheism still believing in God. Very interesting. And so now you have this this question, okay? I have an idea of God. And then Descartes used this little Latin phrase, ek nihilo out nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So the idea didn't come from nowhere. Where did the idea come from? And and Descartes said, well, you need another principle here. You need a sufficient cause. An effect needs a sufficient cause. So what would be the sufficient cause to cause the idea of God? Well, there's nothing sufficient to cause the idea of God other than God himself. So if God caused the idea of God... God must exist. I kind of like the argument. A lot of people don't like the argument. But you know what? It again brings us back to biblical truth, doesn't it? Remember Paul in Acts chapter 17? He's on Mars Hill. He says, oh, I found this incredible little statue here, this little idol uh, to the unknown God. Paul says, let me introduce you to the unknown God. This is the God in whom you live and you move and you have your being, and he's not far from any one of us. In fact, your own poets have actually spoken about him. We have this idea in our hearts and our minds. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says that eternity is written in our hearts. There's another footprint. It's what I call the conscience footprint. I love listening to the news now. Should we take a poll this morning? Should Trudeau have announced his vacation or not? Should Trump tweet? Probably not, but it's not going to stop, right? Should the Russians have hacked? The Democratic National Committee? And who knows what else? Nobody's asking, should Hillary have turfed Bernie? Because they like Hillary. We ask lots of questions about right and wrong. We have all sorts of ideas about what's right and what's wrong. The question is, how do you justify those ideas if you take God out of the equation? That's the problem. If there's no God and you're running around all the time saying, that's not good, that's evil, what are you really saying? Are you saying, I don't like it? Is that what you're saying? It's like, it's okay, but I don't like it. Please don't do that. I don't like it. Please don't murder. I don't like murder. I don't think you're saying that. Or is it something that society is saying? You can't live in our social contract theory. You can't live in our society and do this kind of stuff. It's bad. The problem is most great ethical leaders have always opposed what society thought was right. And quite often they get killed, like Socrates and Jesus and many others. Many others of the same ilk. 
So where do you justify this idea of, of right and wrong? This is where you need to read Mere Christianity, the first ten chapters, and find out about what C.S. Lewis calls the law of human nature. What he says is built into us is a knowledge of God. And with that comes the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil. Paul says it this way over in Romans chapter 2. When the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these who don't have the law become a law to themselves. Conscience. Genesis 1 tells us that what? The human being is created in the image of God. God left his stamp on us. Nothing in the entirety of the universe is more like God than you and me. Now, I have a lot of work to do. You probably do, too, to sharpen the image a bit. Built into us, emotion, will, intellect, Awareness of good and evil, of what God desires, these are important things. We come to the fifth footprint, which I call the free thought footprint, which doesn't mean you can think whatever you want to think, but if you've been thinking with me this morning, which I hope you have, I actually thought I was thinking when I was speaking. I presume you thought you were thinking when you were listening that we were having some kind of a dialogue, that somehow we could adjust our opinion and come to truth. Right? Isn't that what this is all about? I'm supposed to try to convince you of a truth. You're supposed to acquiesce and say, Lou, you're right, okay, I'm going to, get, I'm going to be a good girl, good boy, and, and get in line. That's theoretically what we're talking about. But what happens if God isn't there? What happens if you live in a materialistic world which is only run by the laws of cause and effect? This A, then B, then C, then D, then E, then whatever. So that you and I today aren't here by accident, but throughout the whole course of time, whenever it began, big bang, bang, whenever you want to start it, through these causal laws, we ended up, here we are this morning. You thought you drove the church because you wanted to come, you didn't. You're sitting here listening to this message because you thought you wanted to hear it, or maybe not, but you're here anyhow because you thought you should be, blah, 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 on and on. It goes, you're not here for any of those reasons at all. You're here because chemically you were determined to be here. And I'm playing this huge game up here with myself this morning, thinking that I actually can convince you when in reality I can have no effect on you. And the problem with all of this is what it means is something like this. We're caught up in this huge machine. Physically, I'm a product of that machine. Mentally, I'm a product of that machine. My brain is much under control of these laws of mechanics as anything else. I think what I think because I must think what I think, which means I can't think anything other than what I think, which means I can never have a real dialogue, which means I can never know what the truth is. 
It sounds like a game, but it's not. If you want to read about this in a serious way, read uh, Nancy Percy's book, Total Truth. It's an incredible book. All of a sudden you find out great scholars, like B.F. Skinner, take an old psychologist's behaviorism, writes a book about how everybody in the universe is determined, except obviously him because he's writing the book about it. And it's not just him. This is a huge problem for a materialistic worldview. And what do we as Christians believe? Created in God's image. Emotion, will, intellect. God says to us, Isaiah 1, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. You see? God says, come, let us reason together, say, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Okay. God is the one who speaks about the human mind through Paul in Romans chapter 1. When they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. They became vain in their imagination, foolish hearts darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They worshipped the creature more than the creator. And then we see God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And, and he says, good luck, you're on your own. What am I saying this morning? I'm saying this. When you see footprint after footprint after footprint, are any of these arguments by themselves so solid that you just can't back away? No. But once you start seeing footprint after footprint after footprint after footprint after footprint after footprint, how many footprints do you have to see before you realize there's some truth here? That's what we're saying. We don't believe against reason this morning, folks. We believe because of reason, but not only because of reason. I can remember one time I was sitting in a graduate studies program at NYU, and I was so mad at things people were saying against God. God looked at me and said, Lou, I don't need you to defend me, okay? I'm a big boy. Okay. And then he said, read your Bible. Read Hebrews 11. The one who would come to God must believe that he is. And he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Reason gets you so far, you need faith to get you home. There will be some today who will say, those Christian weaklings... They just need a crutch. They just can't face harsh reality. They need a little God. It's kind of like whistling in the dark. Make yourself feel like you're safe. I can tell you something. It's not about the crutch thing for the Christian. Belief is not just a crutch. Okay? Because here's the deal. That argument cuts both ways. What about the guy who's saying, you believe because you're afraid. What about the, if I say, you choose not to believe because you're afraid of the other harsh reality that there is a God and there is judgment and you're not in a really good place at this moment. 
You see what I'm saying? I believe in God. There's one further thing this morning that I want to talk about. I'm going to steal Giselle's microphone. I'll give it back to you, I promise. Okay. I'm not going to sing. Relax, okay? If you read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says to be able to give a reasonable defense for the hope that is within you. In verse 16, he talks about something else. And you should read this text, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. What he talks about is, is when you make your response, make it in such a respectful and godly way and with respect of other people, that when they observe you, their malicious slander will be refuted. So there's one more footprint I want to talk about this morning, and actually, I'm not going to talk about it. I want to invite Derek and Lynn to join me at the front here this morning. Okay? You may not know Derek and Lynn, so this is a, a, a double think. Come on up. Don't be, don't be afraid. Okay? Because... One of the great, the sixth great footprint is the footprint of a changed life. And I, you know what? One of the things I've loved about you can stand right here and look at the people. They're, they're not that scary, honest. Okay. Some of them are, but most of them are, most of them are pretty good. Okay. Derek uh, and Lynn have been with us now for about a month. Yeah. And uh, Marguerite and I were having lunch with them last week. And as we were talking, I said, wow, what an incredible story about a changed life. And so I asked them, this isn't just spontaneous here, I mean, I asked them, would you be willing to talk about this? Because Marguerite and I talked about it all week as to how God works. So, Lynn, how did you come to Christ? Or do you want Derek to explain how you came to Christ? <laughs> um, talk into the microphone. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> how did you come to Christ? Um, it was in uh, January 2008, and... Uh, um, at that time, I was doing the tax return for my family, and I got so worried as I look at the expense that we spent in the past year. And I was thinking, like, how can we make enough, enough money for the next year? I feel like so unsure about the future, about the years after. And then at that time, it was uh, near the Chinese New Year, so uh, one of my friends... Chinese New Year. <laughs> remember, remember the program, October, uh, what, January 28th. Here we go. Yeah. Right. And he told me about the uh, celebration at the uh, nearby Chinese church, um, and he invited me to the church. Um, so uh, on Sunday morning, I went to the church, and uh, they were playing the, the music, and they, they were singing. And the beautiful music just touched my heart. And I remember that the, uh, the song they were singing, like, um, it's like, Troubles and the trials, he will guide you through. His grace is sufficient for you. And that, and at that time, I realized there is a God, and He's good, He's gracious, and His grace is sufficient for me, Pretty always. Good. Amen, <laughs> right? That's good. Yeah, so how did, how did Derek like your new, uh, your new religion here? Uh, well, at the beginning, I actually feel not that comfortable by my wife going to church too much. I think she just spent too much time. It's tough to have a new wife, right? It looks yeah. the same thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, being a family with two boys, she's already very busy to manage the cleaning, cooking, sending the kids to the program. But it did not take too long for me to understand there's a lot of change in my life, in my wife's life. 
And uh, ever since coming to church, and I think she becomes busier. But busier means actually he do the things at home more efficiently, more effectively. Our house before. It was kind of a imagine with two boys, ten years and six years old. Most of the time, kind of in a mess. But now, in order for me not to object her to going to church, she chose to finish everything very well. Then she will go. Yeah, that's the first difference I see noticed what she's doing in the home. And not only by that, I think、uh, she also become quieter. By seeing that, he always can find the time to read some Bibles. I remember after dinner, he always find time. He also take notes, write down, expand some proverbs, and、uh, when he some find some good sentence, some verbs,、uh, verses, she will write it down and even put it down on the walls of washrooms, put in a transparent file holder, put on so that we can see it. And、uh, sometimes he just write, and actually one time he she even、uh, publish one her testimony in a magazine, and we are, we feel so happy about that. Not only that, I think she become smarter. Before we argue a lot, sometimes I have to say we even fight. But after that. She seldom argue with me, and if I do not have somebody to argue with, so I just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> so there's a lot, lots of change in her, and she sings a lot, she smiles a lot. The home, the family, just felt warmer, filled with more laughter, and yeah, I like it. I enjoy it. Good. Yeah. And and so you decided to become a Christian then? Uh, yeah, two thousand nine March first, and that's actually the deadline for that uh, uh, Easter Day baptism. Because my wife has went to church for some time, she was invited if she want to get baptized, baptized, and she said, "I, the husband is not believing, she won't wait for me." And on that day, I I went went there because I see the see the difference in her. So later on, I went to church with her, although not all the ways, but on Sunday worship we will go. And I tell them I want to go baptism with her together. And the pastor asked me, "You need to believe." I said, "Okay, I believe." <laughs> believe you need to admit you are a sinner. Because I see the difference. See how he she was changed. Actually, I understand, realized inside me what kind of person I am. I said, "Yes, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I need someone to help me." So that, Amen. What's the effect of me? Thank you. Thank、yeah. you so much. You can go for more. You get the idea, right? God's alive. God is real. God's alive. He's still changing people. I was so moved by that last week. It was just great to know God is alive. He changes people. He can change you too. I believe 
in God. That's a start. Next week we need to find out what God's like. Okay, It's one thing to believe in God, but the Christian God is a very, very, very special God. Jim's going to be sharing on those things. Well, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and uh, lead us in singing. And thank you, Derek and Lynn. Really appreciate your, your input.